Um, I'm Misha, I'm one of the co-founders of Nova Credit. Uh, we are a global credit bureau. Uh, we first made a name for ourselves by aggregating the world's credit reporting system uh, to allow people that are new to country uh, use their overseas credit history to get approved for products. We support partners like Amex, HSBC, Verizon, and, and many more with that. And then the last three, four years, we've made a big bet uh, in open banking data to help anybody that has a bank account here in the US, immigrant or otherwise, get approved for credit. Okay, Stephen. Thank you, Peter. Hi, my name's Stephen, uh, owner and, or CEO and founder of CRS. Uh, we are a credit reporting agency and have built a platform that specializes in providing credit bureau data and also alternative data through that, through a very seamless, easy to access, and ultimately one uh, endpoint and one vetting process. And we focus primarily on traditional data and with a little bit of the alternative data mixed in with that. Okay, so let's talk about what kinds of data your companies are working with. Uh, Misha, what, I, you know, you, you made your name, as you said, with the, um, the International Credit Bureau data, which I think is fantastic as someone who was not born here. I missed this when I came over here uh, 30 years ago. Um, but tell us a little bit about what kinds of data you're working with today. Yeah, so uh, we've got two, two products we're public about. Uh, one is called the, the Credit Passport, uh, where you know, if Peter tomorrow were to pack up and, and move to London or back to, back to Australia or a relative were to move to, to the US from Australia, we'd be able to tap into your home country data. Uh, and that data consists of traditional credit bureau data. So it's from the leading bureaus around the world and we bring that data into the US, we make it compliant. Uh, and we deliver it as a credit reporting agency here. So that's, that's the credit passport. And then separate from that, we announced a product a couple years ago called Cash Atlas uh, that uh, makes using bank transaction data, so open banking data, uh, through a number of partners, uh, easy to use for purposes of credit risk assessment. Okay, and um, Stephen, what we'll just describe a bit further about the data you guys use? Yeah, we, we do a, pretty, a lot of the same in that we do provide the uh, credit data, the traditional data through the three credit bureaus. Uh, kind of a portfolio, a portfolio of their products and services, uh, specifically in the U.S. as it is regulated for that, and then other public record data like uh, LexisNexis and uh, vendors of that sort. Okay. So then consumer permission data, I want to really narrow in on exactly what we're talking about here. Can you give us some examples, Misha, of the types of data that you're using and the, when we're talking about underwriting how we're you know, the exact types of data that you're talking about. Yeah, so, I mean, I think part of our, our thesis is that there's a ton of data out there, right? Some of it's in the bureaus, but an incredible amount of useful data is not in the traditional credit bureau system. And as you think about the credit bureau for the 21st century, it's unlikely that that looks like, you know, a monolith of all the data in the world. Right. It will likely look like there will be a variety of data sources out there that are incredibly valuable for purposes of understanding someone's financial health and credit, uh, but they're really hard to use for a number of reasons. Uh, and so core to our approach to consumer permission data is if you can get permission from somebody to tap into these data sources, uh, and that permission can take a variety of forms. It can be a checkbox. It can be uh, credentialing that happens through a number of aggregators, but once you can get your hands on that data, you can allow a person to paint a more complete picture of who they are, put their best foot forward, and ultimately help a financial institution make a much more fair and informed decision. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, I think it's also important to emphasize that all, all of this data is really consumer 
oriented or consumer permission in that it, whether it's banking data or credit data, it, the consumer has to really initiate the permission for that data to be viewed either on a B2B side or a consumer side. Right, so then what about, let's talk about traditional credit data. What, what are the strengths of traditional credit data? I think it's a time thing, really. I mean, if you think about it, traditional credit data has been going on for a really long time. I mean, there's a lot of it. Uh, you talk about 200 million consumers that, where that data is you know, being parsed out, it's being studied, it's being researched, it's being analyzed, it's, being, it's been used in an, an incredible amount of you know, arenas. You've got large institutions like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae who have diced and sliced that, you know, that data to such an extent that they can predict, you know, have a really powerful way to predict those models using that data. And so you have a lot of time and a lot of research and just a lot of energy and resources that have been used to really make that data, uh, to really provide that risk uh, analysis for that data. So then, when it comes to consumer permission data, um, you know, there's been, we, we started, I think our first session we had was probably five years ago on this topic, um, maybe even six years ago. So, it, and, it, and it's become, I wouldn't say mainstream, but it's certainly mainstream to talk about it at an event like this. Why has it become so popular, do you think? It's a nightmare to use. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really hard to, and that's why you really need to partner with you know, with, with someone who has proven experience in supporting tier one financial institutions with deploying consumer permission data. Why, why is it a nightmare? Just, and, and, and for a few reasons, but, but core, core to it is that the traditional credit reporting space knows how to sell APIs. They've got a sales force that knows how to sell APIs and they're, you're, you know, your buyer is the risk organization. But to be able to tap into a tremendous amount of data that sits outside of the traditional credit reporting space, you have to understand how to interact with user experience. Mm -hmm. You have to understand how to think about the trade-off between a digital workflow and credit risk analytics. And then on top of that, there's a tremendous amount of incremental uh, compliance questions that arise around fair lending laws here in the U.S. and ensuring that you can adequately address those questions around how you know the data capability and the insights you are unlocking have a net benefit in that they're promoting greater access to financial services. And that, that argument is quite complex and there's a lot of nuance to how you do that and how you hold multiple stakeholders at a lending institution and bring them up to speed on how, you know, this isn't rocket science, this is just a checklist you have to go through to really understand the ins and outs and that's a process that very few uh, players in, in the space have figured out how to work through. But what about things like Experian Boost? I mean, that's fairly mainstream now. It's, it's consumer permission. That, is that a nightmare to work with? I mean, I imagine it, because it's just connecting, you know, like, um, I don't know if it's, it's rental. It's, I know it's... Uh, it's bank data. Bank, bank data, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Stephen, I think, re resells uh, Boost as, as part of their offering. And, I mean, Experian may be in the room. They're a partner of ours around the world. We have a lot of respect for them. Um, but I, I think our, our view on, on Boost is that its value is, is limited by the number of people who have gone through Boost in the first place. And so that still represents a very small percentage of the overall U.S. population, and therefore the potential benefit of it is still very, very modest versus if you can actually give people the tools while they're applying for a financial product, then you can unlock the data that can help them actually prove who they are. Steven, do you want to add? You want to add yeah, I might add a little bit to it. Um, I, I would say uh, Experience Boost really is that focus in using permission, consumer permission or banking data. And it really helps kind of 
I would say, merge those two data pieces from both the, the you know, com, uh, consumer permission data and the traditional data, and actually merging them together. And I mean, the numbers are, the bureaus have about 200 million consumers currently. 100 million consumers, as you know, as Experian Boost's website indicates, are those that you know could very much use a product like this. And just recently, you know, Experian has already indicated that they have 50 million of those consumers currently using Experian Boost. So I, I, they are moving in being able to combine those two together in what would be a very successful way of presenting that. Okay. So when you're working with lenders, um, how like, what's the biggest challenge with implementing? You said it's a nightmare to work with, Misha, but I'm talking about putting it into a, into a credit model. That, I imagine, particularly if you're doing something, you know, you want to do something programmatically, I imagine that's, that's a pretty big challenge, right? Or how, how are lenders doing it today? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are a variety of, of um, hooks and tricks and, and, and things we've uncovered and developed with our partners that make, that take using it, uh, I think implementing it from a nightmare to something that's actually very lightweight and easy to do and can be done without any technology investment. We've got no-code, low-code implementation paths that we've developed that really insulate our partners from having to do much of the work and to go from a, you know, when I say nightmare, a multi-quarter, if not multi-year endeavor to try to figure out how to do this in-house versus working with a partner that can actually get you up and running in a few days or in a few weeks. And, you know, there's a variety of, of paths of, you know, removing the user friction, of making the decisioning process easier, of validating how you use uh, the data in a way that adheres to, you know, the fair lending laws here. But at, at the core, you know, trying to embark on this on your own, the sort of the buy versus build um, conundrum, trying to embark it on your own. I mean, we've seen partners do it and then come back to us a few quarters later and be like, this is too hard to figure out on our own because there's, if you just think about the work to be done, right? You got you to gotta vet the ecosystem, figure out who the right partner or partners are. Then you have to go and understand the underlying data attributes. You have to figure out how to standardize that data. You got to build your models. You don't know how to do retro studies on all, all of that. You don't know where to implement it in your user flows. You don't know how to make sure how that information is, is being being used compliantly, and, and then you have to build and advocate for a business case that you don't actually know how much lift you're going to get, right? And so these things are, we've seen this take off many times and then never really work through because many companies at first try to figure out how to do this on their own and then realize that working with somebody that was actually figured out how to do this at scale makes it a whole lot easier. Right. Well, I want, let's talk about lift because that's the only reason to do this, right? You're going to either, well, you can either expand your your, your, your Population that you can pot, that you can actually lend to, um, or you can provide you know potentially um, I don't actually, uh, provide better better rates. What like what what is the? Can you give us some examples or how is this providing benefit to lenders? Yeah, we we have, we've got a, a case study out there where um, uh, we were able to five x, not five percent, ten percent, but five x, so five hundred, I guess four hundred percent. Uh, improve the ability for American Express to approve the new to country segment using our capabilities. So, it, and, and that's an extreme example because this is literally people who arrive invisible, right, who have no financial history or very little credit information, and so they're going to get rejected. And we're able to 
get them approved by virtue of plugging in their foreign history, right? And so it's just, it's black and white for this segment. Not able to access, able to access. And so the lift is, is tremendous. For within bank data, I think there's a lot of um, reports out there around the power of, of bank transaction data, but it's going to depend on, you know, what your risk box looks like, where you're focusing your marketing strategies, what channel strategies that you, you're really prioritizing. But seeing lift in the order of 20 to 40% is, is you know, lift that we have seen. And that is like significant in terms of the incremental benefit and the efficiencies gained across all your channels. Right, right. So Stephen, what about um, from your perspective? Are you, and you, you said you, you, you focus primarily on bureau data, but is, what are the, like, are you providing lenders with um, some of this alternative data as well? We do a little bit through the experience, um, and the bureaus actually have started to incorporate that into uh, their traditional data. We actually believe in it. I mean, ultimately, traditional data does reach a, a limit, to, particularly for consumers who do not have credit or have a thin file or have no score. And so how do you... How are you able to determine whether or not they have an ability to pay or whether they're going to pay their bills on time? And so banking data really helps us in that. But it's, it's still kind of, from what we've seen, it's still in its infancy, or at least to the extent that it's sometimes hard to combine those two together. And so we actually believe in a cascade method where traditional data is first. It really does from the time, usually uh, just from the extension of the data and the concentration of data, it will give you that first picture. If that doesn't work, then you, have, you cascade to the banking data. And then that gives you that additional lift and that additional information to help uh, be able to give, uh, basically under, or qualify a, a greater scope of consumers. Yeah, I was going to add, I agree with that. I mean, it's an easy way to get started with the data, right? It's your, if you um, haven't used it before, if you don't have your own in-house, you know, first-party data, if you're not a bank that, you know, if you, especially if you're a fintech and you've never really worked with building credit decisioning on top of um, bank transaction data or consumer permission data, a waterfall approach is a great way to get started. And then over time, as you get more and more familiar, as you season your cohorts, you'll be able to find more and more ways to move this alternative data up your application funnel. Right, right. Okay, so let's, let's get to an audience question here. What are your thoughts on bias? We had a whole session on bias earlier, but what are your thoughts on bias in owner permission data as people with negative information are going to withhold the negative information? I mean, I think it depends on what, what type of um, owner permission data this, the question's referring to here. But, you know, with respect to, like, um, I mean, actually, it works for both of our products. Like, if you choose to opt out from linking your data, from permissioning access to it, like, you are far more likely to, there's far more likely to be, you know, a, a negative event there. And so you're going to end up with the same decision, right? You are going to decline this person without it. If they choose to opt out, there's no change in the path. If they choose to opt in, then they have an opportunity to make a case to you that actually um, the decline path that they were on isn't the right decision. And if, that and if that information is of sufficiently rich and high quality data, then that can actually reverse the decision. Okay, so um, we're, coming, we're coming towards the end of time. And Stephen, I want to put you on the spot. Is there a definitive answer to the question that we had at this panel? Like, is, is there a definitive answer to which type of data is more valuable today? I, I don't think we can answer it one way or the other. I think that uh, ultimately uh, traditional data is going to be exceedingly important as your first pass for your consumer. 
but it's, it's, it's becoming clear, particularly as generation changes in the way that credit is being used. And we're seeing that more and more consumers are not using credit in the same way that they used to. And so that really forces us to begin to say, look, traditional data is no longer the answer for everyone. And so we have to find alternative ways to be able to predict risk. And I think that's where banking data and other types of alternative data is exceedingly important to be able to make these decisions. Right, right. <clears throat> Okay, so what are best practices to overcome customer reluctance slash drop-off with providing credentials to enable access to permission data? That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a number of best practices uh, that, we've, that we've worked through, and, and whoever posed the question, if others wondering about this question, was encourage you to come and, and chat with our team to kind of walk through the nuances of what your product line is, what your workflow is, and how to trigger what the right moment is to introduce this. But, a very simple approach that we've seen work remarkably well is give people on the decline path the option to add more data. And for those people, you don't really care about drop-off at that point because you're already turning them down. And so there's really no downside to being able to give that consumer the opportunity to permission more data. Okay, so is, um, this is an interesting question. Is this just for thin file um, consumers, or does it add value for thicker files as well? I mean, we, we've seen we've seen value across the credit spectrum. Yeah, right? I agree. I mean, there's, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So there's, there's, um, I mean, there's a lot going on in the world in terms of, like, you know, st government stimulus that's happened in terms of, you know, all these credit builder products and Netflix subscriptions that are in the Bureau in terms of the fact that hard inquiry data is disappearing uh, at a relatively fast clip right now. And that's such a huge indicator around, you know, changes in, in credit activity. And so there's, there's a need, uh, especially in a, in a recessionary environment, to, to augment and harden the type of data that you have your hands on. And so we're seeing more and more um, partners start relying on alternative data, permission data, even for thick file applications. It also allows you to expand your models because where you had a certain model that was specific to only traditional data, let's say a score of, five, of 640 or 680, but then you bring in some of this additional data and suddenly you can lower that score a little bit. It widens your uh, pipeline of people because that data actually predicts a better risk than just the score alone or the tradition credit, traditional credit report alone. Right, okay, last question we end with. I'd like to hear from both of you. Um, Stephen, maybe you can go first. Do you think, now you've, you've been in credit a long time, and um, I'd love to get your sense of will bank data eventually leapfrog traditional credit data in its predictive power? I don't think it'll ever replace it. I think it'll balance it out because you will still have that 200, 200 consumer, 200 million consumers that have a deep file of traditional data. But I, I do not think that we're going to be able to do financing the way we're doing now with just traditional data. It will have to be balanced out with banking data. Misha? Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I'd say, say that. that partly facetious. I mean, I'll, I'll take a swing at it. Why not? You know, it's the last session of the day. Um, I mean, look, there's, what is bureau data? What is traditional data? It is a summary of your liabilities and how well you repay those liabilities, right? And your activity in applying for credit. That's traditional bureau data, and you can argue there's other stuff in there, but like at, at the core, that's what it is. What is open banking data? What are some of these alternative data sources? It's a 
deeper view into your financial health, right? I can see you've got a direct deposit coming in from FinTech Nexus every couple of weeks. I can see, you know, rental. I can see expense profile. I can see cash balance. I can see information into your liabilities. And so it's a deeper view into your financial health. And so it's going to take time. And I don't know if that's years or a decade, but it, it, it's an, it feels like an inevitability that bank transaction data is going to continue to be a driving force in helping drive, uh, helping bring more people into the financial system. And, you know, the arguments I've heard around why traditional data is better is you got seven years of information, but the vast majority of the credit list is coming from the recent information. And In bank data, you can see, you know, now you can tap in and see years of information. And so if, if I were, maybe we'll do this panel again when, you know, in 20 years and we can, we can, we can see for sure, but <laughs> you might not be here. I'll, I'm still going to be swinging. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's coming. It's, it, we're already seeing it come. And I think we're, these are the types of questions that many, you know, uh, lenders and risk officers are asking and, and digital teams are asking to try to figure out how to navigate and would just encourage you to go, you know, speak with the ecosystem. There's a lot of great companies out here. Um, speak with our team, speak with you know, a number of other players that do credit risk analytics, and I think you'll see that a lot of these, um, a lot of these questions uh, the industry has learned how to navigate. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Misha, Stephen, thank you very much. Give him a thank hand. You. Thank you. Thank you.